Last week when Mike Grimes and I were in California for the Legionnaire Conference and recording some podcast episodes, we also spent some time with our missionary family, uh, one of our missionary families, the Sasanes, uh, not Vanit and Sasaya who are in India. We support them, uh, but Vanit's brother Aaron and his wife, Abby. So we spent time with them. Uh, Aaron is studying at Westminster Seminary in California and planning to go back to India. We support them as a church. And uh, they're actually going to be here in a, a few weeks, spending a couple of weeks with us. So you'll get to know them better. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to having uh, Aaron here with us in June because then he'll be all here. Because when we were with him last week, he wasn't quite all with us. And the reason I say he wasn't quite all with us is because he was cramming and studying for finals. And so he was maybe, I don't know, 20% with us. Um, I think he was being kind and gracious, spending time with us because he knew his big tests were coming. Well, I'm going to use my talk and my speaking about Aaron to talk about tests when it comes to the importance of tests. Uh, I don't like tests. I know some of you do. Um, we have a special class for you. Um, who likes a test, really? I, I don't like tests. I'll bet Aaron Sasane doesn't like final exams, and yet they're important. Uh, in fact, I'm really glad that they're testing Aaron, because when you're tested and you pass, it proves something about you. Um, it might not prove everything, but it proves something. Tests are important, Right? Um, I want the person giving me medical advice to have been tested in that area. Uh, I want a pastor to have been tested if they're giving me advice about eternal issues. Uh, when I'm riding a motorcycle on the interstate or freeway, uh, I want to know that that semi-driver has been tested. Um, at least it gives me a little bit better feeling. When someone's working on my house and doing something technical, I don't want them to just be anyone off the street. I want them to be tested uh, because it proves something. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a big test for the church, the early church, and we're going to see it in Acts chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, we can resume our study of the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and following, we see, we see a really big test for the apostles, and they represent the early church, and they are going to be persecuted, they are going to be told to, to change their message and that will be a test. Uh, God gives us tests. I don't think we're tested in the same way they were because we're not them, we're not apostles, we're in a different scenario. But I actually am a firm believer in the fact that the Lord uses tests in our life, uh, our life as church life, uh, our lives as individual Christians. Um, are, are we going to be faithful? Are we going to keep representing authentic, genuine Christianity or are we not? And sometimes people don't pass the test. I'm glad to tell you they passed the test in Acts chapter 5. That encourages us even here today. Something uh, about boldness, something about devotion to God and the gospel. I hope it further stirs your heart to want to be a faithful Christian because of what God has done for you in the gospel. The test. They're going to pass the test. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42, all the way through the chapter. And we begin in verse 17 where it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Only two verses, and I already have so many questions. 
There are so many things. Public prison, yeah, so everybody can see. Public humiliation, make an, uh, make an uh, object lesson out of them. Listen to us, we're in charge. And if you don't, there's going to be trouble. Let them be an example to the rest of you crazy Christ followers. Next question I have in the light of those two verses, who's the high priest? Well, that, that's more complicated than you might imagine because there are two high priests at this time. But there can only ever be one high priest at any time. But there are two. How can that be? Well, the Bible's contradictory. Um, no, it's not contradictory because the official high priest, I won't get this technical throughout the whole sermon, but let me just, let me just try to really confuse you. The official high priest is Caiaphas, but his father-in-law is Annas. Now, wait a second. He's not the official high priest because if you're a Jew, you think that the high priest has to be high priest for life. So if you're Probably, if you're a Jewish person you, person, you think Annas is the high priest. But Rome took him out of power, and they made Caiaphas the high priest, his son-in-law. So who's the official high priest? This is like a game show. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Well, which one is here? It kind of doesn't matter, but I thought I would at least engage you in, in why sometimes people try to attack the Bible, uh, and they do so unwisely. Um, according to Rome, the official high priest is Caiaphas. He's called the high priest sometimes in the gospel accounts and here. And Annas, his father-in-law, should be the high priest till he dies, but he's still alive. So many Jewish people call him the high priest, thus two high priests. So Bible trivia. <laughs> in chapter 4, verse 6, they're both present. So it doesn't matter which one it is. Could be both of them, um, but... I thought it was worth trying to confuse you by going through that little exercise. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you now. I really want to get your attention if I can and have your attention. What's a high priest do? They have an important job. Now, I realize in modern America, we think a priest as Roman Catholic priest. That's not the idea. The high priest is in charge of the temple and its sacrifices. It's a super, super important responsibility. It's a great responsibility. And let's maybe not read the bad we know about them into it just yet. If you're a good high priest, you're a good Old Testament high priest, a faithful one, in so many ways your job is to promote the gospel, at least in type and shadow, right? substitution, substitutionary atonement, shedding of blood so that there can be forgiveness. What a great job. What a great gospel job. Your job as high priest is to make sure everything everything is done just so, the way God says. And in, in anticipation, it's promoting the gospel. The gospel that is to come, no doubt, and also protecting the gospel from corruption. Now, you all know, and I know, that these are bad actors at this point in time. They have lost the plot line, and now Jesus, the fulfillment, shows up, and they reject him. They're not protecting anymore, they're perverting. And I put it that way because we should remember, though we're in a different place at a different time, dealing with different kinds of people, sometimes it's also true, even later, people who were supposed to promote and protect the gospel end up perverting it, losing sight of it and opposing it because they too have lost the plot line. We should probably also ask ourselves before we move on who the Sadducees are. 
we've said it before, but I'll say it again. Sadducees, they, they deny two really big things. They deny the resurrection and they also deny, they, they deny the existence of angels and spirits. Acts chapter 23 verse 8 tells us that explicitly, which is really interesting because you've got the Pharisees represented in this official council and they believe in angels and they, they, they believe in resurrection and the Sadducees deny those things. Isn't it interesting how opposing religious parties, if you will, theological parties are united in opposing Christ and the apostles? Strange bedfellows. But here they are together, united, and they are jealous, our text says. They're filled with jealousy. Why would they be jealous? Well, they're jealous because if we looked at the verses before, verse 17, oh, how about back up to verse 12, that the apostles are doing many signs and wonders. Well, these religious officials aren't. That would cause them to be jealous. Uh, in verse 13, toward the end, they're, they're, the people hold them in high esteem. Well, that, that could cause them to be jealous. Uh, the church is really growing in verse 14, uh, added uh, to believers, uh, multitudes of men and women. That could cause jealousy. Verse 16, they're gathered from all around the towns of Jerusalem, bringing the sick and the afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Those are the signs and wonders going on. Jealousy, 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 jealousy. In chapter 4, the officials told them to stop preaching, and they're still preaching. Jealousy, jealousy, jealousy. Well, I have more questions, but we should probably stop. Let's go faster now. How about picking up, picking it up in verse 19? But during the night, so they're in prison, but during the night, an angel of the Lord, who Sadducees don't believe in, <laughs> right? It's awesome. You know, if there were this dialogue between the, between a Sadducee and an angel, this angel, let's just say, and the Sadducee says, I don't believe in angels. And what would the angel say? I don't believe in Sadducees <laughs> because your theology is impossible because I'm standing right here. So there's just wonderful, delicious irony um, that the Sadducees are named. During the night, an angel who doesn't exist, but do, no, no, they do exist. An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. In, in verse 23, we're going to learn they were securely locked and they were also guarded and brought them out. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this. I like the way the translation I'm using capitalized life. All the words of this life. Please notice what he doesn't say. The angel doesn't let him out and say, now run for your lives. Right? No. The angel frees them to actually do something that might get them in Worse trouble, right? They got in trouble for preaching and for being so popular. And now all of a sudden they're released and they're commissioned to go and keep preaching. They're called to do something even riskier or, or more dangerous. I don't know about you, but I really liked that part about capitalizing this life. What an what a interesting shorthand summary to summarize the gospel. The gospel that brings life. The gospel that brings eternal life. This is so much uh, the angel saying, you just keep preaching the good news of salvation in Christ. You just keep telling people what Jesus told you. Like in John chapter 6. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. 
And he ties it in John chapter 6 to the resurrection. I will raise him on the last day. That's the kind of eternal life he promises in John chapter 6 verse 54. John 6.47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 6.68, the response to Jesus is when he says, do you want to leave me like all these other people? And they say, no, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. No doubt when he says, keep speaking the words of this life, he's just saying it shorthand gospel because the gospel brings life. Maybe one more word there before we move on, and that's the word all. I might be reading too much into this. I don't know, but I find it intriguing. My job is to pay attention to, to, to words and words that stand out and words that don't sound quite right because they're there on purpose for effect. All the words of this life. Not sure if we're intended to read it this way or not, but perhaps. Don't alter the message. You see what happens when you do this. And it doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to imprisonment. So just in case you're tempted to, you know, trim the edges off. You know, maybe maybe we could just doctor it up a little bit. And maybe, maybe we could still talk about God and use Bible verses and, and Jesus and say, you know what? If you believe in Jesus, you'll have more purpose in your life. You'll have a clearer purpose in your life, which would be true. If you believe in Jesus, you'll be happier. If you believe in Jesus, you might have a better marriage. I mean, they could say true things and they could even credit Jesus with it. But I think keep saying all the words, keep saying all of the gospel kinds of words. So it's not time to stop talking about forgiveness because, you know, forgiveness assumes sin. It's not time to stop talking about atonement because atonement assumes sin and you're not okay and you're not inherently a good person. No, you got, you got to tell it all. Keep giving all of it because it's not your gospel to begin with. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. We're not going for a revision. We're not going for version 2.0. And as long as you stick to version 2.0, then people will like you. You won't upset people. And I think, let's just take a moment and say, that would be good for us to remember. It would be good for us to remember that we need to give all of the gospel, not a domesticated version that's more palatable, that's more acceptable. Important to remember, we live in a day where it might be considered a hate crime to tell someone they're a sinner and to name the sin that they're enslaved to. Folks, if you don't have sin, you don't need a savior. You got to give all the gospel. So if we put it in these terms, if you're talking atonement, it assumes there's sin. If you're talking, we, we, we have to be willing to tell people what God says is sin or there's no forgiveness. Let's maybe also, because we're sinners too, remember that much. Keep giving all the life message. Keep saying what you were saying, Peter, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Next. I wonder, what do you think is going to happen? I already kind of gave it away. Are they going to pass the test? Right? The, the, the angel of the Lord. So from the Lord, here's the test. Here's the commission. Here's what you need to do. What will they do? Well, we already know. 
Verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Ah, that just warms my heart. Right? They're going to do the right thing. They're going to stick to the script. They're not going to modify it. And at daybreak, right away, they go. I wonder what was in their minds, going on in their minds. If it were me, my attention, my attention would be divided. If by God's grace, I was being faithful and speaking the truth about the life, I might have one eye on the door. <laughs> right? I mean, something's going to happen. This isn't, this isn't going to end well, more than likely. They passed the test, though. By God's grace, they're being brave. By God's grace, they're being obedient. By God's grace, they're showing love towards sinners, just like has been shown to them. Now it almost gets comical. So if this were a movie, we're going we're gonna to go from one setting to another setting. So in verse 21, we go from one setting, and then without warning, it goes right to another setting. Okay, So the, the apostles are, are in the temple, but now we're in the court. So let's keep that in mind, and you'll see what I mean where it's almost comical. Now, this is verse 21, partially through the verse. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. And this is known as a, in Judaism, as a formal event. Right? Think, think maybe it might help. Just think to a, think, think of a formal courtroom kind of setting. And they would have had, um, students who came to observe and learn. It's very official and just so. And they're used to having a certain kind of order of things. And so now they're all ready, kind of like court is in order. Bring out the prisoners. Yeah, and the angel who doesn't exist let them out and they're preaching in the temple, <laughs> you clowns. I mean, it, there, there's some delicious irony to all of this. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We have found the prison securely locked. wonder why the angel relocked it. I, I don't know. And the guards standing at the doors, I wonder how the angel dealt with the guards. It wasn't mentioned earlier. Text doesn't say. Sure he did. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. They, they, they were, they were, yeah, I'll bet they were, right? Dazed and confused. I can hear Jimmy Page's guitar in the background. They're, they're, they're dazed and confused. They're greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. How is this going to end? How did this happen? But they're, they're already a step ahead. And now, how is this going to end? Talk about bizarre. The angel let them out. Okay, amidst the discussion. As they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what's happening, verse 25 comes. And someone came and told them, look. Now, is it out of a window or did they have to take them by the hand and have them step outside? Close enough proximity. Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, it's a good look. 
And it's also a good contrast. And I don't know if you picked up on this or not in our text so far or in the book of Acts altogether or so far in the book of Acts, but there's this repeated emphasis that keeps coming up in the preaching and also in Luke's um, recording. God, man, you religious leaders, God, apostles, Jesus. And it just keeps coming up. And it just came up there. You guys, you power broker big shots who are in charge, you put them in prison, but you know what? They're out there preaching. And we know how they got out there. An angel of the Lord got them out. God, gospel, Christ, apostles, angel of the Lord... Religious leaders who are supposed to be doing the right thing, protecting and promoting the gospel, but they've lost the plot. Oh, wow. Verse 26 says, Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force. Wonder how then? Cordial invitation? (laughs) What, right? For they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they're popular. They're helping people. No wonder the jealousy. So they invite them. I wonder why the apostles agreed. Surely it's not because they're going to stop preaching. Maybe it's because they respect authority. Maybe it's because it's another platform to preach Christ to them. We would just have to guess. But they go. I think it's interesting though. 27 says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We, notice it's going to happen again, the we, you contrast. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you, apostles of Jesus Christ, have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. By you saying what you're saying, you're exposing us for doing the wrong thing, for sinning, for committing the most unthinkable of all thinkable sins if it's true. If we affirm your good news of life, we have to admit that we are wrong and sinful and also in need of a Savior. I think it's fascinating. Most of the time, most of the time people won't say that. Even when you talk to them about the gospel. These guys do. They say the quiet part out loud. You're trying to have his blood on our hands. And we'll have to admit we're wrong. And we'll have to admit we're sinners. And that's just going to be the crushing blow to their pride. Even though most people won't say it, I'm always at least thinking it when I'm talking to people. You know what? For you to believe in Jesus, to forgive your sins, you have to admit that you're not inherently a good person. In fact, you have to admit that you're a violator of God's commandments. I I like this guy's style, at least. At least he's saying it. Now the apostolic response. They're saying, this must stop. This has to stop. Verse 29, you're going you're gonna to love this part. And Peter and the apostles, so this is in unison. This is together. This is the, the common confession. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's worth pausing over, right? 
You can all remember that. I can remember that. I don't have a very good memory, but we must obey God. Notice the contrast again, rather than mere human beings, even those who are in positions of authority. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. We have to preach the gospel in its entirety with the implications because that's what we're commissioned to do. And if you guys don't like it, we can't change. Now remember, Peter himself is going to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He even goes on to name the ungodly emperor. Two things can be true at once in different senses. Peter has a high regard for authority. Or he wouldn't have said that. But, but this is this is black and white. You got to stop preaching Christ, or at least doctor it up. You got to stop pre- preaching the true Christ. And Peter, this isn't a gray issue. <laughs> this isn't gray. This is at the heart of Christianity and the Great Commission. And Peter has to say, "We must obey God rather than men." It's really important. It's important for you to know that, to hear that, for me to know that, and to hear that. This isn't flippant. This isn't, you know, uh, I want to overthrow the government because I don't like all the nitpicky things. Change the gospel. Stop preaching the true gospel. The apostles unanimously have to say, never. Never. That's important for us to know. That's really important for us to know. They're passing the test. And you know, and I know enough to know about Peter and some of the things he's capable of to not turn into like Peter worshipers. (laughs) No doubt by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, who they will name in this very text. They're being bold and courageous and doing the right thing and seeing straight, clearly, No other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. How in the world could I deviate from that? What's the most kind, gracious, loving thing I could ever tell anybody? It's how to have their sins forgiven. It's how to be reconciled to God. This doesn't even make sense. And now they do in fact care to elaborate. So let's keep going in verse 30. The God of our fathers. Now you maybe he means... We apostles, the God of our fathers, but probably not. The God of our fathers, us, us Jewish people standing here. The God of our fathers, the God of, that would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivers, the God who forgives. Yahweh, the one true and living God, the faithful God, the righteous God, the God that we all know about. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now there's a lot of, a lot going on there that's, that's not complicated to understand, but you gotta stop and, and, and survey. 
You got to stop and study a little bit. So we're not inventing a new religion with a, with a, with a different God. No, there's continuity. The, the, the God who always has been and always will be, the God of our fathers, the ones you say you, you believe in, that one, the God of our fathers, what did he do in contrast with you guys? You crucified, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. He raised Jesus from the dead. So we're going to stand up against you because the God of our fathers, you guys should actually be with us. Because our God, the God of our fathers, raised Jesus from the dead. And remember, remember beyond this text, Jesus' resurrection is his vindication. Jesus' resurrection is, among other things, proof that he was perfectly righteous. That he perfectly, personally, and perpetually obeyed God's law. The the resurrection is the vindication. It's proof. Not only did he never sin, but he always did the right thing. He always loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. So by raising our God, the God of our fathers, we know whose side he's on because he raised Jesus from the dead and not in a back alley for public people to see like you guys and your family members. There's a lot happening there. And notice the contrast. Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. That probably means more than first look. Or there's more implications there. According to Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 21. You, you, you hang someone on a tree for being a, a, a heinous breaker of God's law. It's judgment of God for being a lawbreaker kind of thing. Of the worst kind. So notice the contrast. God, the God of our fathers, raised him from the dead, proving, vindicating him that he was perfectly righteous. And yet you guys, to show who's on the wrong side of history, you treated him like he was despicably unrighteous. So you tell us to stop telling people the good news. (laughs) We got to obey God rather than men. We just have to do it. It's a matter of principle. It's a matter of logic. It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of the only hope anybody has. I'm thankful for what's going on here. But they don't shy away. They're clear about about who has committed something atrocious. Isn't it interesting that these guys who are supposed to be gospel guardians are actually gospel opponents. Don't think it stopped in the first century. Sometimes, I believe, people who are supposed to be gospel guardians end up being gospel perverters. That's why the Bible, Jesus warns about shepherds in sheep's clothing. They're supposed to be for the right thing. They're not. Further emphasize, to, to further emphasize the contrast, how about verse 31? God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. There's so much good stuff there. How does it get any better? God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Well, first, let's have a theology test. Does God the Father have a right hand? 
No, God the Father doesn't have any hands. If you got the question right or wrong, you came to the right place. John chapter 4, Jesus said, God is a spirit. John chapter 1, no one has seen God at any time. He's invisible. He doesn't have hands. So why does it say this? To make the point, right? To make the point. He's exalted to the right hand of God as in the most important place anyone could ever be in the most important position anyone could ever occupy. The one who is indeed, to use old English, in his session, in his reign. You guys are authorities, but you know what? Jesus, the one you crucified, is the ultimate authority. To the point where he's seated at the right hand of God Almighty. It's great. It's no wonder they're so bold. It's no wonder they're so clear-headed. It's no wonder they have such strong convictions, even though it might cost them. Because they have seen the ascension. He had, this is ascension talk. God exalted him at his right hand. We, we learned about that early, earlier in the book of Acts. But then let's keep going. He, he's at his right hand as leader and savior. I'm going to use a, a, a different word, translate it differently for effect, because leader is just kind of a, oh, you know, dime a dozen. But let's, let's up it a little bit. Sometimes that same word is translated Any guesses? Captain. In Hebrews chapter 2, I think it's the same word. The captain of their salvation. Hebrews 2.10 in the King James translation. So let's play with that a little bit in our minds to kind of help us. It's talking about the one who is the founder, the one who is the leader, the one who's in charge. Jesus, the one who's exalted to the right hand of the Father, most highly exalted position, he's there not only for himself. He's there for his crew. He's there as captain, and captains have crews. So it's it's, it's wonderful and delightful. You know what? He's not only there, he's there for us, and so we will stick to the script. How could we not? He's our captain. And that's not all. It also says at the right hand, he's at the right hand as savior. So he's there as the one who will save us. He'll save us from our sins. He'll save us from Satan. He'll save us from ourselves. He'll save us from our biggest problem, who is none other than God. He's there as our savior. He's our intercessor. Always making intercession on behalf of his people as, oh, the king, but who's also a priest. The ultimate high priest, huh, it's just pretty great to consider. This good, clear thinking about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished and what he's doing and where he is translates into something very practical. It causes them to not agree to pervert the gospel. Maybe one of the reasons we're so prone to do so even in our age, it's because we don't really know what it is. And we really don't know how great Jesus is. We don't really understand that he is there as our captain. Highly exalted. May God help us to think differently so that we would live differently, so that we would preach the same 
and teach the same. How about verse 31? Why is he there as a champion savior? Well, look at verse 31, the latter part, to give repentance. That right there is fascinating enough. To give repentance. They're responsible to repent, but notice, according to the sovereign grace of God, it has to be given to them to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And does Israel have a lot of things to repent about? Yes, mainly Jesus. Do they need a lot of forgiveness of sins? Yes, big time, like every other sinner. But isn't it interesting to see the mercy and the grace even that the apostles are showing to the leaders? You know why he's there? Oh, don't, yeah, he, he, is, he is a coming judge. Peter's, Peter's preached that. But even here in this strong, forceful message, He's there as a Savior, and He's there as one who gives repentance. You all have been utterly and completely, you religious leaders, wrong. Headed in the wrong direction, drawing all the wrong conclusions about Jesus. You need to repent, as Peter's been preaching at times. And, and Jesus gives repentance. Jesus gives forgiveness. It, oh, wait, we can't go, we can't, we can't move past that yet. Jesus, the one who's at the right hand, gives forgiveness? Remember when Jesus, before he was crucified, told someone he forgave their sins? Do you remember that? That was in Luke chapter 5. And do you remember the response of the Jewish people who heard? When Jesus said he forgives sins, what did they do? <laughs> they, they cried out, right? They said, that's blasphemous. That's a lie. Why? Because they said, only God can forgive sins. Uh-huh. And they would be right. Because Jesus is a human being. Incarnation is true. And Jesus is the eternal Son who is divine. These apostles have convictions of such things. We're going to obey the Great Commission. We're talking about the one who forgives sins. Why would we want to tinker and doctor up that message? Doesn't even make sense. Oh. Verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things. So there's, there's, there's credibility. There's legitimacy. They're not the only witnesses, but they are witnesses to these things. They were there. They saw the ascension. Witnesses to these things, not to mention the things that happened before, not to mention the crucifixion, not to mention the resurrection. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. No surprise there, but let's keep reading. Whom God has given to those who obey Him, based upon what, based upon the, the anger that they're going to respond with to the apostles for saying that, you, you gotta stop and think about the implication. What are they saying? We were, we are witnesses whom God has given, the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. In other words, we have the Spirit. You guys don't. Now sometimes we, we, we need to repent of our bad theology. We, we think the Holy Spirit showed up in Acts chapter 1. <laughs> The Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been alive and well forever. 
The Holy Spirit has been working throughout the Old Testament. These guys don't show up and say, Holy Spirit, who's the Holy Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit has a long, clear track record of working in the Old Testament. So the apostles are saying, maybe differently with the New Covenant, things like that. But the apostles are saying, God's blessing, empowerment, leading and guiding, affirming, is with us clearly. And you know what that means? We believe in Jesus. We have His Spirit. And you guys reject Jesus. You know what that means? You don't have Him. And this is going to cause them no small amount of angst. Notice what it says in verse 33. When they, the religious leaders, heard this, they were enraged. Literally, it's a word that it can be for they're, they're, they're torn in two. They're sawn in two pieces. They're furious. Oh, how could you possibly say that? Of course, we are the religious establishment. We, if anybody has the Holy Spirit, we do. We represent Israel. They're enraged. They're infuriated to the point where it says, and wanted to kill them. Now, one good thing about that terrible incident is Jesus said, they persecuted me, they rejected me. Guess what's going to happen? They're going to do it to you too. It actually serves a bit of an apologetic um, purpose. You know what, these guys, I'm more apt to trust the apostles because they sound like Jesus. They say the same message. And at least from some people, they get the same response. In that sense, it's affirming. John 15 affirming. 34 says, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So cooler, a cooler head is maybe going to prevail here. Remember, well, I shouldn't say remember. You may or may not know that Gamaliel is the one who mentors Paul. So we'll we'll learn more about him in chapter 22. Um, Wise, smart, respectable, highly esteemed Pharisee, I think. 35 says, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Be cautious, be careful. Then he, he gives two historic examples and he bases his argument upon two historical, historic examples. 36 says, for before these days, Thutis, is how you pronounce it, rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So, you know what? Maybe it'll just be like that. Calm down. Then he gives, a, gives another example. After him, Judas the Galilean, not Iscariot, it's a popular name, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. Okay, th- 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 those are my examples. And based upon that, how about verse 38? So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. He's not praying the sinner's prayer and inviting Jesus into his heart. Um, He's not becoming a Christian. But you know what? It might be wise to follow 
my suggestion. He's being reasonable. 39 says, so they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Why'd they beat them? Well, to make a point, to flex, to maybe at least appease some of their more extreme supporters. It's politically expedient to do if that's the case. 41 says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Yes, rejoicing is what it says. And they were, they, they rejo- they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In my mind, I think Jesus despised and rejected Isaiah 53. You know, we're not Jesus. We certainly aren't perfect. He's our Savior. But the fact that they're treating us the way they treated Him, we have to count as honorable. And so they rejoice. I think it's really fascinating that they rejoice when people believe in the gospel. We'll see it in chapter 8. Many people believe in the gospel and the apostles rejoice, right? This is great. And they also rejoice when they're persecuted. How, how, how are you going to do that if you're given the opportunity? Well, I, I suppose it comes from them believing in the sovereignty of God. I mean, they, they have a, a very strong commitment to knowing that God is sovereign. And all, they, they believe Romans 8 is actually true even though it hasn't been written yet. God is in charge and He's going to see us through to the very end. And, and Jesus said they can't harm a hair on our heads apart from God's sovereign decree. So, so they can rejoice either way. Maybe they also can rejoice either way because they know how the gospel works and they know how gospel preaching works. We're going to learn about it in Acts 13.48. Listen to this. I'm paraphrasing. All, no, am I? Let's see. I'm not paraphrasing, I'm quoting Acts 13, 48. All those who are appointed unto eternal life believed. Oh, so we just preach Christ to everybody. Yeah, sometimes it leads to beatings. Sometimes it leads to people believing. We're just going to keep preaching Christ because we know where our Savior is and we know that He's for us. Fascinating. Either way, deep-seated knowledge of God's sovereignty, plus they're aware that they're obeying God and obeying what He's told them to do. And they know how the gospel works. So how about verse 42? It's wonderful. It's encouraging. It shows us they passed the test. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Fierce resolve. Wonderful resolve. I don't know about you, but I thought it was kind of odd the way it's worded there because it, the Bible doesn't word it that way very often. Preaching that the Christ is Jesus. But sometimes I like it when the Bible says it a different way than I'm used to. It's saying the same thing, that Jesus is the Christ. That the Christ is Jesus means the same thing. 
The Messiah, the one we were waiting for, the ultimate one in the line of David who could rule and reign forever and protect his people and care for his people as a shepherd king, the Christ, the Messiah, the ruling and reigning one who is seated in heaven. You know who that is? The kid that grew up in Nazareth who walked among us, who's really here and really one of us. Oh, and by the way, his name does mean God saves. The only one who ever was named Jesus who lived up to his namesake. Oh, that's him. They just kept telling people about him. They could be forgiven, reconciled, guaranteed resurrection. Now, as we leave, I hope a couple, two, three things happen. As we leave, I hope you are encouraged. This church, ancient church, early church, tested, passed. We can be thankful. We can be thankful that they seem to be legitimate because if they wouldn't have, we would wonder. I hope you can also be inspired and say, you know what? I I, want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing even if it leads to good things happening, but also if it leads to bad things happening. I also want to remind you that an angel of the Lord isn't always going to deliver these guys. Stephen's about to get martyred in our narrative. All of the apostles are going to be persecuted, most of them martyred. Guaranteed resurrection promotes boldness. Promotes boldness. I praise God for these kind of accounts. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we don't have to worship these apostles. But we can certainly worship the God of these apostles. And pray that God gives us similar kinds of convictions for the glory of Christ. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work of the Spirit in regeneration and applying the work of the Son to us. Thank you for your amazing wisdom, even in giving us the Bible so that we might find encouragement, that we might join with other believers around the world being encouraged. We don't know what tests you might have for us. But we do know enough to know that we are frail And we will fail apart from your sustaining grace and mercy by the power of the Spirit. So we pray. We pray that you might use us. And you might use us to speak clearly and truthfully regarding your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.